With me is Robert Carmichael. Robert has been at the forefront of Cambodian journalism for the last 15 years. He's done a lot of stuff regionally. He was the editor of the Phnom Penh Post. He uh, recently released a book called When Clouds Fall from the Sky, which is on the personal issues confronted by uh, a, a family uh, from France and from Cambodia who went through the whole trauma of the Khmer Rouge. And uh, now he's about to pack his bags and move on. So, Robert, hello and welcome. Thank you, Luke. It's uh, nice to have this chat. We've had many chats over the years, um, none as formal as this. So I'll be interested to hear what we've got to say. <laughs> Indeed. You've been here for 15 years, and I like to say that Cambodia is a rapidly normalising country, and things have changed enormously. Um, how do you rate Cambodia now as, um, as opposed to how Cambodia first hit you when you got here? Uh, well, a lot's changed. I mean, you and I were both here in 2001, which is when I first got here. Um, and uh, I stayed two years then, and then I left for about six years and came back in the beginning of 2009. Um, yeah, I, even in that short period of time, Cambodia changed hugely, um, economically, politically, um, in terms of opportunity for young people, which is still lacking largely, but it's improved. Um, education, there's health, I mean, a, a lot of things have changed. Um, a lot of things haven't changed enough, but a lot of things have changed. Uh, infrastructure particularly has got much better. Um, but associated with things that have got worse are uh, a lot of the rights issues like land rights, uh, although there have been improvements in some areas of land rights, um, uh, and particularly in urban areas where land has got very, very expensive and people have been turfed off their land, uh, refused land titles, uh, etc., and, uh, and kind of victimized at the, at, uh, you know, at, at the expense uh, well, victimized to benefit benefit the already wealthy. So the um, so you know in many ways that's that's in many ways uh, a lot has changed for the better in Cambodia. But in many in many ways um, things haven't changed enough. And one of the things that has changed most significantly is te significantly uh, is technology, um, and that raises the question of uh, where things are going to go in the next ten years because people are increasingly aware of what's not working politically, economically. Um, in their own lives, uh, and I think technology is going to prove to be uh, a big factor looking ahead over the next 10 years. It's already proved to be a big factor over the last five. It's, um, it's an interesting point. Many years ago, uh, the then Commerce Minister Soxapana used to talk about skipping the curve, which meant we don't need to make shirts, we don't need to do a lot of the things that other third world countries were forced into doing because Cambodia arrive, had arrived with uh, the digital age and it's kind of worked for and against them in that it's education has uh, been speeded up and people have access to all sorts of stuff they otherwise normally wouldn't have but it's created a lot of issues for the government they can't control online media the way they can control local language newspapers and that's that's led to um all sorts of differences uh, and changes on the media scene. How do you see the media and the Khmer language, the English language and other foreign language press, and how has that grown up over the last 15 years? Yeah, so the media is, is, a, is, is one of the things that's, that's possibly changed more than anything. Uh, that is linked to technology for sure. Um, so when, when I first got here in 2001, the ruling party had pretty much uh, complete control over all broadcast and most print media in Cambodia. So every television station, radio station, pretty much every radio station. Not quite all of them, but pretty much all of them. Uh, certainly every TV station and, um, and most of the, of the local language print media uh, newspapers. So 
that's, you know, that worked well for the ruling party uh, for a long time. Um, but in terms of the changes to media now, it is the case that media is, is I mean, Facebook, for example, didn't exist back then, and, it, and, it, and it's the most popular app in Cambodia by a long way. And a lot of Cambodians get their, their news feed through Facebook, which, of course, the government here doesn't control. Um, so the government still controls the sort of, I guess, old-school media um, in the way that it always has, but increasingly people aren't getting their news from the old-school media, or if, if they are, they are also able to dilute the government message through more independent sources of news or even more biased sources of news going the opposite way to the ruling party uh, through social media. So that's a big change, and that's one of, the, one of the key things that has changed over the last, really over the last five years, but certainly looking back on when you and I were first here in 2001 compared to now, um, it's, it's a huge difference, and it remains to be seen as how that's going to play out in terms of influencing people, because media, we know, is very influential. The government, short of shutting down or instituting some sort of Chinese great firewall, um, like China has done, and China does you know, assist Cambodia in many ways, as I'm sure we'll get to later. Um, short of instituting that, uh, it's hard to see how the government control, can control the flow of news in the way that it was so easily able to in the past. Right. I mean, one of the other changes, of course, is that the internet is by and large in the English language, and Cambodians have learned to speak English. It's amazing, uh, en masse. And this, with an election coming up, I think we're going to see the messages be being delivered to the political audience is going, to, is going to be more and more online. But it's also more and more in the English language. And this, I think, is bringing pressure to bear on uh, English language journalists. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting as regards the, um, the, the delivery of, of news and language. I mean, it is also the case that the Khmer language, uh, the, the, the script uh, for, for Khmer, uh, the Khmer language, uh, is, does exist. It, I mean, people can communicate in the Khmer language online, which, again, wasn't the case 10, 10 or so years ago. That's also relatively recent. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, the language of ASEAN is English, uh, the language of business is English, uh, and of course in this part of the world, Chinese as well. Um, but there's, there's uh, interestingly, like if you look back at Cambodia's history, of course, there was a big French presence for about 100 years prior to independence in the 50s. Um, and, uh, but but it, is, it is the case that young Cambodians do not want to particularly learn French, they want to learn English or one of the Chinese languages, um, because that's where they see the future. Uh, and I think they're right to. I mean, I think that is that is the case. It, it may frustrate France, and it does in Africa as well. Um, but it is the case that young people are keen to speak English. Um, and I think that's partly. I think you're right. It is partly driven by the fact that so much information is available in English, uh, whether it's specific to Cambodia or whether it's just international. Whether it's you know American news broadcasts or British or Australian news broadcasts, uh, websites, movies, um, all that sort of thing. Uh, I think that is increasingly going to become more important in Cambodia. And that's a good thing, too, because, you know, Khmer is not a widely spoken language. And for young Cambodians to have more opportunity, they need to know at least another language. Uh, otherwise, th their boundaries are quite will be limited to Cambodia itself. And the world is increasingly globalized in a big place and full of opportunity. And that's not the case in Cambodia. There's not enough opportunity. Well, this, is, this, I think, leads to the next point as well, in that um, perhaps one of the great issues confronting Cambodia will be a brain drain, mm -hmm. where you have a lot of um, Khmer kids, uh, terrific kids, who have uh, university degrees which are recognised around the world. They're not just dismissed as being Cambodian. 
uh, and they can leave and they can work. And we've never seen any of that from this country at all. Uh, and I think that will have a big impact on the political landscape as well. Yeah, it, it could certainly do. I mean, you know, it, it is the case that in the sort of 50, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, talented young Cambodians uh, from pretty much any background could go abroad to France to study at university, and many of them did. It was a, it was a French government program at the time. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, Cambodian universities have got better. Um, a lot of them are still below par. Some of them are, are absolutely fine and, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and excellent. Um, but a lot of them are below par. And actually, interestingly, it, it is the case that they are still overwhelmed with applicants, which that shows that there is a real hunger for uh, the benefits of further education. Um, and I think one of the things that Cambodian government is going to have to do is, is try and improve the standards at many of the universities in Cambodia to make sure they are up to regional standards. Because Cambodia still, education-wise, although school education has in the last three or four years started to improve significantly, there's much more money going in. Uh, I'm not sure that's happened at university level. And, you know, Cambodia is going to need to, um, to boost its, uh, the education of its workforce if it wants to keep growing its economy at a rate of 6 or 7 or 8% a year going over the next 20 years, which is pretty much what it's done over the last 15. Um, and that's what it really needs to do. It also needs to create opportunities, jobs uh, domestically, because uh, people don't necessarily want to leave. And there's, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of Cambodians living in Thailand and Malaysia and uh, increasingly South Korea, possibly the Middle East. Um, people tend not to want to have to leave. Uh, to find work. To have the choice to leave is one thing. To have no choice and have to leave is something else entirely. And right now, largely, that seems to be the case. And of course, um, 15 years ago, you'd be lucky to find a Khmer with a passport. They just didn't travel. Um, moving on that basis, the, of course, uh, the other uh, big issue that runs constantly and concurrently with Cambodian life over the last 15 years is the um, Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Uh, you've written a book, When Clouds Fell uh, from the Sky, uh, which is based around the Khmer Rouge and the tribunal. Uh, how are sales going? How is, it, how is that whole... The book has been out now for two years. Uh, how, how, is, how is that all going? Uh, it's going fine. I mean, it's, uh, it's in bookstores in the region. Uh, it's online through Amazon and various others. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's never going to be sort of selling in the realms of Harry Potter novels and that kind of thing. It's a fairly limited audience, I think. Um, I've tried to write it as broadly as possible, so it's, it looks at broad areas as well, like war crimes, tribunals, truth and reconciliation commissions as well. You know, the alternative approaches to, to trying to find solutions to, frankly, an intractable issue to which there is no solution that is really going to satisfy everyone or even most people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the subtitle of the book is um, uh, a, uh, it's a, it's When Clouds Fell From The Sky, um, uh, and it's about a, a young French woman who's trying to find what happened to her, her father who disappeared. He was a Khmer diplomat, came back to Cambodia in 1977, right in the middle of the Khmer Rouge rule of Cambodia. Um, and he disappeared, and so it's about their family's quest to try and find what happened. Uh, so the subtitle is A Disappearance, A Daughter's Search, and Cambodia's First War Criminal, which gives you an insight into who that might be. And that's, of course, Comrade Doik, who ran the infamous prison here in Phnom Penh. Uh, for several years, and he was eventually jailed for life by the war crimes court. Um, so, yeah, so the tribunal, it was actually the reason I came back in 2009 to try and understand better what had happened here, uh, and more importantly, why it had happened. 
Um, and that's also something I've tried to incorporate into the book uh, to try and explain why this happened, not just what happened, but why, because that's really important. And um, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal has secured three convictions against the most senior, which was part of their remit, and they've had... Uh, well, Comrade Doik has been jailed, Nunchia and uh, Q Sampan are both jailed for life for crimes against humanity, and they've just wrapped up the case of genocide against... Yang, uh, so I was going to say Yang Siri. Of course, he was uh, one of the originals charged, but he's, he died before any sort of justice could be rendered. Um, how do you see the charges of genocide, the crimes against humanity? Um, Q Sampan, a uh, uh, most interesting intellectual character, if I can say that about one of the great mass murderers of the 20th century. Nunchia, he, um, he's as defiant as ever. Yeah, so I mean, both of them basically said uh, it wasn't me. Um, the court in the uh, the court divided the case against them into what turned out to be two parts, and in the first part they were found guilty of crimes against humanity and jailed for life on on appeal. So, so they're not going to be released from jail. The second part, as you say, is just concluded. Uh, it looked at one of the issues it looked at was genocide. Um, interestingly, like case two, which is the case against the senior surviving leaders, so that's Nunchir and Kusampan, and prior to that, the foreign minister Yang Suri and his. Uh, late wife as well. There were four of them originally. Case against them was long and complicated and so was divided. So um, two of them died during trial. Um, yeah, it, it is, you know, it's the case that journalistically, um, as I'm sure you found as well, there was quite a lot of appetite for the trial of the first Khmer Rouge, the first Khmer Rouge trial, Comrade Doik. Some of the editors have said to me that um, the case against Nunchia and uh, Kyu Sampan it's just too complex to explain it to ordinary audiences, which I would disagree with. However, I mean, we all have bosses to answer to. Yeah, it's the case. I mean, and, and certainly, you know, when I was reporting on... So I reported quite a lot on case one, which is the case against Comrade Doig, and he's the guy who the book's partly about. Um, case two, for sure, there wasn't as much uh, interest by a long way, and that means that essentially, as a, as a, as a freelance journalist working here, um, you simply can't cover the trial as much. So I covered case one significantly, case two not so, not so deeply at all. Um, and uh, in fact, I rarely went out to the tribunal to, to, to watch proceedings, which I did a lot of during case one. Um, you know, as regards the, 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 the case against Nguyen Chia and Q Sampan, so to come back to your first question about, about genocide, it's a very specific um, area of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, crimes uh, or al alleged crimes, as, as we will we'll see, um, that, that, that the courts adjudicating in terms of genocide. It's looking at genocide against um, ethnic Vietnamese people living in Cambodia and uh, the Cham Muslim people, so a minority Muslim community in Cambodia, and whether or not uh, genocide was committed against them. Um, and uh, most people outside Cambodia would probably assume that the genocide charge applies to uh, the, the mass killing of ethnic Cambodians. It doesn't, not in this case. There are academic and legal arguments that perhaps it should, that um, that, that should be uh, a crime, other than, I mean, currently genocide is sort of defined as a, a crime against the other. So it, within Cambodia, it was it was uh, Cambodian ethnic people. In the Khmer Rouge, killing a lot of other Cambodian ethnic people, and technically that doesn't fall within the, the crime of genocide. So um, so the, the, the specific charge of genocide here is against ethnic Vietnamese and ethnic uh, Cham Muslim people, and we'll, you know, we'll... You know, we'll, we'll see the court's going to render a decision at some near, at some point in the, within the next year, I'd imagine, on a final decision on all of that. Pardon me. Yeah, indeed. Uh, the, um, I think the decision is due out before the end of the year, but uh, the court has been uh, full of its own politics as well. Um, speaking of politics, we've just had the commune elections, which 
went off pretty well. However, as we all know, the political commentator, Kem Lay, was assassinated a year ago. There was the very nasty bashings of opposition MPs on the steps of Parliament, which um, basically characterised the commune elections. Things did get a lot easier after that, although there's been a lot of political figures uh, jailed. And, and now we're heading into uh, an election year. Uh, in Cambodia, there are elections every five years and the general elections are coming up. The CPP and Hun Sen, their popularity is not what it used to be. It is dwindling with uh, a rising new generation, the changing of demographics. Uh, how do you think the opposition will fare at the next election? Uh, and I might just quickly add that I don't believe that simply because they're in opposition they're automatically entitled to the Cambodian youth vote. In fact, many people see uh, the opposition as being two sides of the same coin with the, the, the CNRP, the Cambodian National Rescue Party, on one side and the ruling Cambodian People's Party on the other. So how, how do you think um, either party will fare at elections coming up? So one of the things about Cambodia that has been a constant of the country over decades is that they have never had, in my, in my opinion, um, particularly good political leaders. They've had shrewd political leaders, but not leaders that have delivered sufficiently for what people need. So we're talking things like health, education, jobs, opportunity. Um, and that is, you know, that, that, and, and, and while you still control the means of uh, dissemination of information, so through the news media, that's relatively easy to keep people in the dark. Well, it certainly was anyway. But like going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this, uh, technology means that it's far harder to, to, um, to uh, uh, not deliver and not get found out. Um, and Cambodians are very technologically adept. Uh, people, I think, would be surprised at that, that uh, most Cambodians have a smartphone or have access to a smartphone, and young Cambodians certainly, and are, are sharing stuff all the time. Um, so, you know, this, this whole technology change is something that the ruling party certainly hasn't got, uh, I think, much of a clue about what to do about. Um, they're worried about it, as they should be. Uh, they don't quite know how to deal with it. And I'm not sure there's a lot they can do to deal with it in terms of technology. What they could do a better job of, and what in some limited areas like education they are trying to do a better job of, is delivering better services to Cambodians. So, better roads, better education, um, but it's still too limited. And part of, the, part of the problem is as well that, um, that people need more than just roads and, and, and a better school education. They need to be able to attend school. So the dropout rates are still pretty high. And that requires better opportunities in the countryside in rural areas. And it also means the country needs to develop more jobs. So the young people coming through, a lot of them will look at the ruling party and say, well, you guys aren't providing jobs for us, so I'm not going to vote for you. And the only opposition are shrewd enough to... to you know, to, to promote their, their policies uh, that will fix the ills as they, as they see it in Cambodian, in Cambodian society and the lack of opportunity. Whether they can deliver on that's another matter entirely, sure. but until they're in power, we can't really call that one out. So, so um, I, you know, in, in terms of next year's election, mid-2018, um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, relatively unstable compared to what we've seen to date. Um, one of the ratings agencies, Moody's, uh, recently sort of gave Cambodia a downtick in that direction, saying the ruling party is basically going to, uh, could, could um, by, by trying to, by trying to uh, retain power at all costs, uh, could damage the country economically. Um, and I think that's, uh, I think that's probably true. Um, I think that 
Um, there's also issues about the current prime minister and rumours about health that he's, he's dispelled. He says his health is fine. He has no health problems. Um, within the ruling party itself, who knows quite what's going on. It's always been quite a closed shop. Um, but certainly we're in for an interesting 12 months until the election next year because there's a lot of, un a lot of things up in the air now in, in all different spheres and uh, quite a lot of uncertainty. So we'll, we'll, I mean, we'll have to see in a year's time what happens. But it's worth closing on that by saying the ruling party has made it quite clear that uh, they will go to guns to stay in power. So that's, that's a concern, and we, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with that. Uh, of course, uh, the Prime Minister, Hun Sen, um, has repeatedly re warned that this country would return to civil war if he's not elected. He's also said that he won't accept the result if he's not elected. Um, I'm not convinced of all of that as yet, I, but I do agree with you very much in terms of what's happening in the countryside, like uh, fish stocks, uh, where a fisherman would catch 300 kilos of fish in a day, now he catches 10 or 15 kilos. The land that they once, many people once had access to is now gone, that forces them to work in garment factories in the cities. It's a total upheaval of life and life change for these people and it's leaving clusters of people behind and um, the, the, a lot of these people once voted for the CPP and it's kind of, I'm not, uh, I don't know if that vote can be, I don't know if that vote can be guaranteed the way it once was and this, this matters because this is their rural heartland. That's true, and you know the CBP rightly, and, and, and fair enough, you know, has long been the party of will we beat the Khmer Rouge, even though there are former Khmer Rouge in the, in the ruling party, but that aside, um, they, they did you know, end up um, breaking the Khmer Rouge and, and uh, sort of nixing it in the late 90s. Um, and for that, a lot of older people, particularly who remember that time, were very grateful, and rightly so, that the Civil War ended and the, the Khmer Rouge were finally swept into the dustbin of history. Um, but that was a long time ago, and things change. I mean, that was, what are we now, 2017. So that was almost 20 years ago. And the younger people have no memory of the Khmer Rouge rule, never mind the 20 years that followed Khmer Rouge rule, um, and consequently are not as impressed as the ruling party would like them to be by its achievements in that area. So, which kind of goes back to what we were, you know, we've talked about many times before, and what you're saying now is with the, with the rural heartland of the, of, of, of the CPP, um, as it ages and, and gets older and dies off, uh, the question is, what, what, what is the next generation? Who are they going to vote for? Um, and increasingly, um, I could see them being, and we saw certainly in 2013, uh, there was a big shift towards the, the opposition, um, which they seem to have maintained in the communal elections this year. So for the, the, the national election next year, will um, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens, because for sure the ruling party are concerned and, and the opposition are uh, optimistic. Um, but what that translates to on the day, and, and again, you know, who knows how much uh, nonsense there'll be and, and, and uh, rigging, of, rigging of ballots and, and, you know, general dodgy activity and threats and intimidations and perhaps killings that we've seen in previous elections. Who knows how much of that's going to go on, as well as, you know, jailing people from the opposition, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, blatant political um, changes to laws that have gone through recently that will affect next year's election, uh, and that's effectively looking to stymie the opposition um, legally as well as in whatever other ways the ruling party can do it. Yeah, the dirty tricks department within the CPP can't be dis cannot be discounted in the lead up to an election. They've made themselves well known um, at previous ballots. I'll get you to cast your mind back many a year when you were the uh, editor of the Phnom Penh Post, which was 
a hell of a newspaper in the day when it only came out once every two weeks. But it was in those days, it, it was you know an an extraordinary source of information. Um, what are you? What what were some of your favourite front pages and some of your favourite stories from that period? Yeah, so one of the front pages that stands out um, and still stands up actually uh, some 15 uh, or so years later, um, almost 15 years later, was um, from 2003, January 2003, when there was a lot of anti-Thai rhetoric going around. And this was prior to a general election that took place later in that year, and it was uh, fermented by the ruling party as a way to boost nationalist credentials, etc., etc. And it culminated in uh, a night of anti-Thai rioting around Phnom Penh, in which the Thai embassy, which had only opened perhaps a few months earlier, uh, was set on fire um, and, uh, and badly damaged, and Thai-owned Thai or Thai-related businesses were sacked, a hotel was burned down, and, uh, and that happened uh, for us on a Wednesday night of press week. So like you say, we had a fortnightly paper, which is a, a, which is a disastrous format for trying to report news. But for that week, fortunately for us, uh, the drama happened on a Wednesday night, which meant Thursday was our sort of big news day, particularly that week, and Thursday night we went to press. The paper came out on a Friday. Um, so for us, particularly, that was a standout because we, ha- we, we, had, a, we had a paper lined up um, on Wednesday with really not a lot happening that week. And Wednesday night, it all blows up. And I mean, Thursday, the whole pa- everyone on the paper, all 10 journalists or so, everyone had to get tasked a specific beat, whether it be foreign affairs, insurance, uh, the politics of it, uh, relations, all the rest of it. So everyone had a specific beat. They had to get out there and do what you would, you know, you do on a breaking news story on any newspaper. Everyone has their beat, and they go and they go and cover it as best as they can. But that was something that was unusual for us on a fortnightly. Um, so that that was really good. There was a lot of pages of good coverage. The other thing we had to do as a fortnightly, we couldn't compete with the venerable Cambodia Daily across town, which at the time was being running run by a friend of ours, Kevin Doyle, um, and uh, and a few other a few other folks. Um, and so they were literally a daily, so we couldn't compete on news against them as, as we would have liked. So we did a lot more features, analysis, that sort of thing. Uh, and on that, we were, yeah, on that, we were good. I mean, we, we, competed, uh, we competed well on that. So I think the anti-Thai riot story was probably the, that was probably one of the bigger pieces um, during my time back in those days. And of course, the headline was um, Mobs Go Berserk, yeah. It was, uh, I was in Kuwait at the time and it was, uh, I managed to get a copy. Um, the, 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 of course, the Post did a tremendous job on breaking stories about the Khmer Rouge and I, like my limited association with it, was, um, had more to do with Hambali and um, the, the counter-terrorism. Cambodia's always been, uh, the headline's been written before, um, a sunny place for shady characters. Yeah. And uh, there's never been a shortage of those people coming here right, right up... To this day, I mean, we had the um, the North Koreans who allegedly assassinated dear leader's brother in uh, the Kuala Lumpur airport. They trained here. Yeah. What what is it about Cambodia that it attracts this sort of person to this day, despite the changes? I mean, I sometimes think that people, what how people view Cambodia who have never been here or live abroad, they have this sort of image in their head. Um, and it's not necessarily true, but it does bring them in. Yeah, I mean, it certainly does. And we've seen, uh, you know, nefarious characters like Gary Glitter and uh, people like that, you know, p- popping up in Cambodia as well. Um, yeah, what brings people like that here? I mean, it still has a bit of... Internationally, there's a perception of Cambodia, certainly in the West, as a bit Wild West, a bit sort of perhaps dangerous, um, a bit like maybe where 
uh, it's hard, hard to compare really, just a bit, a bit out there. Um, and it really isn't. I mean, you know, we've lived here long enough. Uh, Phnom Penh is a perfectly charming city. I mean, the traffic's getting worse, but as Asian capital cities go, this is fantastic. I mean, it really is. Um, that said, Cambodia remains extremely corrupt. It's one of the most corrupt countries on earth. Um, only last week there was a story about the passport office uh, issuing passports for three, four, five, six hundred dollars, where someone else can go in on your behalf and get your passport. I mean, it's extraordinary that that you know, in this day and age, you can have an ASEAN passport with effectively not even turning up to 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 get vetted that it's actually you. It's going to. So so they are. So what attracts people here? I think um, it's it, it's easy to get in. Um, uh, it's um, fairly, you know, I mean, if, if you're a foreigner living in Cambodia, I don't think there's a lot of state security looking at people here, unlike places like perhaps China or certainly North Korea, like that, Vietnam. So, so Cambodia is quite, quite relaxed on that front, which is generally good because, I mean, most people don't need to be followed and watched. Um, but I think if you do need to be followed and watched, this is quite a good place to come. And we've seen that because that tends not to happen. Um, it is also a very livable city and a very livable country and nice people. I mean, the Cambodian people are, on the whole, very welcoming and generous and hospitable. Uh, and, and, uh, and it remains, uh, and, and the country has a certain charm that perhaps places like well, other countries like Thailand, for example, have lost over the years with excessive tourism and people getting fed up with so many foreign, foreigners coming, coming to, coming to, to stay. Um, so, yeah, and, and like I said, Phnom Penh is a, it remains a fairly low rise uh, fairly small, two million people, and very charming city. So it's it's attractive from that point of view too. And on that note, where to next? Uh, that's a good question. Um, where, so immediately, um, my wife and I are going back to Europe, um, where she's from, and we'll spend a few months there, uh, and then work out what what next. I mean, I, I'm I'm in. Um, it's interesting. We started with a conversation about the media, and it kind of uh, might be needed to close on that because, in terms of the media, as we both know, and as uh, I'm sure plenty of people out there know too, it's media and journalism and news journalism in particular is going through some odd times. Um, and so I'm currently pondering whether I want to remain in journalism and news media or whether I want to go and do something else. And among the various things I've been trying my hand at are uh, screenwriting for a, um, a TV show, um, perhaps another book, um, or moving into uh, cr crossing, crossing the line and moving into communications. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's all a bit up in the air. I'm doing quite a lot of report writing at the moment, so for corporate clients and stuff. So, get, again, that, I've already moved a bit away from journalism. Um, and uh, I think as you get older, too, I mean, journalism increasingly is becoming something if, uh, I mean, if you're well-connected and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and talented and, and energetic like you are, then, uh, then it's always going to be a, a, great, a great place. But I feel myself less energetic, perhaps. Um, and I wonder if going to a new country after over a decade here will, will like reinvigorate me somewhat to get back into journalism and do more of it. I think it probably will. Um, but who knows, right? I mean, uh, you know, I'm heading towards 50, and, um, and we'll, see where, um, we'll see where it takes me. Um, by the end of the year, I'll have a better idea. I'll send you a postcard. That's old school. <laughs> well, speaking from the other side of 50, I can say this. It's, uh, uh, it's not too bad being on the other side of 50, but the older you get, the more you realize that particularly spot reporting and doing news, it's a young person's game. And uh, I'm okay with that. <laughs> On that note, Robert Carmichael, thank you very much. Thanks, Luke. It's been fun. Cheers.